0: This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices. A joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. As presiding judge on the Denver County Court bench, Teresa Spahn has been a passionate defender of the court and a champion of access to justice efforts in the city and beyond. From her time as a magistrate in Colorado's 17th Judicial District to her tireless efforts to help create the Office of the Child's Representative or leading the O'Connor Judicial Selection Initiative at the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System to her current role, Judge Spahn has always recognized the role of judges as leaders and models of fairness, impartiality, and integrity. Her judicial philosophy is deeply rooted in her character and her experiences as a Denver native from a large and loving family that instilled in her the value of hard work and community. Let's join Mallory Revel and Linda Moss as they talk with Judge Spawn about her experiences and insights she's gleaned as a judge and a leader.
1: Welcome to Our Voices. We're so happy that you're joining us today. My name is Mallory Revel, and I'm a criminal defense attorney with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher, and I'm here with my co-host, Linda Boss, who's a family law attorney with Coom Curry, Rich, and Jarvis. Today, we are thrilled to have the presiding judge of the Denver County Courts with us, Judge Teresa Spawn. Welcome. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm so honored to be asked. Thank you. We're excited to have you. So let's jump right in.
2: Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do today is essentially just talk about your life, who you are, who you want to be. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Who were you? What was your childhood like?
3: Oh my gosh. What a, what a, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I just recently was... Um, did a little video because I get the, I was privileged to get the CJI award this year. And so they asked the same thing, and I kind of went down memory lane, and you're just like, how do I explain my crazy family? Um, so I think, who was I as a child? Um, I grew up literally right on like 50th and Federal. And wow. where I grew up, believe me, it was like a rough and tumble neighborhood. It was absolutely crazy. I still actually hang out with some of the people that I grew up with. Um, and we were all pretty much wild children and um i think we had parents who were great human beings who you know who loved us so much but pretty much like checked out and <laughs> we were <just laughs> raising ourselves and so it was it was pretty crazy it was pretty crazy times when i look back to kind of see all the um growing up i mean i you know, didn't graduate from high school. I had to go back to night school to, to get my high school diploma and kind of find my way to college by myself and just kind of forge that path. And especially where I grew up, not a I. you know, when I graduated from high school, I think we had 700 or 500 people graduate oh, from wow. our class because it, it was big, but mm-hmm. not very many people went to college kind of, you know, where I grew up. Um, and uh, it. I just look back and just say, I'm, I'm glad I had all those years. I, those life experiences have served me well. Um, I had a really crazy chaotic family who were full of life and fun and cooking was always going on. And there was, was always a house where people were literally coming in and out all day long. And on the weekend was a very spontaneous chaotic household. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I I think that's probably where I get my love of people, and I I know the CGI award I shared that when I grew up we had two phones in our house, and it was when I grew up there were like literally telephones, and there weren't any cell phones, <laughs> so we had a big red phone and a big black phone, and they weighed about 20 pounds each phone. <laughs> and so when my friends would come over, we'd always have to say like, don't use the red phone. Like if they were if they were gonna call their friends to say we're running late or whatever, we'd say don't use you can't use the red phone. That's my dad's phone. That's my dad's phone. You can only use the black phone. And because the red phone was my dad's bookie phone, so that's. Oh. Kind
2: of I was <laughs> gonna say, was that like your secret line to the president or See,
3: something? They, that was the bookie phone <laughs> that I grew up in. So, you know, and I grew up across the street from my grandparents, who were Italian, Angelo and Jenny Mancinelli. Thank God they were there. They were the spilly in our lives, and um, they really taught us all how to cook and just really value family and friendships and all those things. So that's kind of the the crazy neighborhood and household that I grew up in. And you're a pretty accomplished cook. You cook amazing food. And I think that
1: that's really a way that you share with people and kind of share your heart. Can you tell us a little bit more about
3: that? You know, I really, I think, I think that is probably the way that my sister always says she's very artistic in music and painting. And she's always like, that's kind of your artistic outlet. And it really is. And I really um I think it's really a way that you share you know breaking bread with people they say is the way that you really bring people together. and for me, it's just I really love people and I love nurturing people and I love people you know coming together. and you know whenever you set down food in front of anybody it 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 really kind of changes the dynamic um, of everybody coming together and it really is kind of an outlet for me to be really creative and you know, I think my husband says we can't have any more platters. They literally have platters all over <laughs> my house. They're all over the wall, they're, they're in my basement. Um, and so it's uh it's just it's it's a love that that yeah. I have. And I've, you know, I've cooked my whole life. I think I've started working in the restaurant industry and catering when I was about 14 years old. So, I've grown up in it. It's what I know and what I love and I've shared it throughout my career, even through the women's bar doing <laughs> fundraisers and at the courthouse, any courthouse I've ever worked at. So yeah, (laughs) that's a big part of my personality. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) So you mentioned, you know, kind of finding your own way to college. I would assume that the same goes for law school. Will you tell us a little bit about your journey through education?
3: Well, um, you know, I went back to night school and got my high school diploma, thank God. And uh, then I just thought, the one thing I will say about my family, even though they kind of didn't provide a lot of what would I say structure or guidance um I know they always believed in like all three of us my I have a sister and a brother and said you're going to go to college they didn't really understand what that was or what that meant and so I remember thinking look I I, I feel like I can do this and so once I got my high school diploma I um applied at Metro, and thank God back in that day, it's now Metro University, right? It was Metro State College back when I went. And they really welcomed non-traditional students. They really gave you a lot of support, Um, literally like sat you down and taught you how to write a paragraph, you know, because I was just like living in a rough and tumble, crazy, wild neighborhood. And so we were having a lot of fun when I was growing up and not learning anything. Mm -hmm. And so they really kind of gave me that foundation. And I think what was really I remember thinking, I'm just, I'm just going to get in. I'm just going to give it everything I have. Because one thing I do have for my family is a strong work ethic. Like I, will, I can give anything 100%. Um, and so I remember going to Metro and giving it all I had, and then I had A's. Usually in B's. And I'm like, oh my God, I was just shooting for a C. I was giving it all I had. And so, you know, you start to get your, you start to figure out who you are. Like, life's about finding out who you are and what your strengths are. And you're like, oh my God, I actually think I can graduate from college and I think I can do really well. And so, um, uh, it's also in college, I met a great friend, Diane Dupree, who was a magistrate in Denver for a long time, and she's very well known in our legal community. And she was about 10 years older than me, and she just thought that I was really funny and mm-hmm. had a lot of personality, and she had a lot of personality. And so um, she was kind of my, I anchored onto her as well, because she you know, could provide a lot of guidance, and I could kind of see how she was doing things and working, making outlines, studying. And so I just latched onto her, and you know, if I find, if I can find something to follow, I usually can, can make it on the other side. And so I did that. I waited tables. I've waited tables my whole life. Like I said, been in the, in the industry of food and, um, and then graduated from college. And I was really proud of that. And then I continued to be a waitress for a few years and travel and just have really a lot of fun, literally see the world start, to start traveling a lot. And then one day I woke up and I thought, all right, this can't be it. I got to figure something out. I've got to I've got to try something else. And I always kind of had law school in the back of my mind. I actually think it's because of Diane Dupree. She knew that she was going to law school, and that was her path. And I started thinking, well, let's see, what can I do? I'm, not, I'm really not smart enough in math and science to, like, be a doctor or go into the medical field. That's not going to work. I started, like, going down the list of things. And I, but I kept thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it will be the same experience that I had when I went to college. Maybe if I give it all I got and I can get in. You know, and that's – I went with the same exact attitude. Worked my tail off to get whatever the LSATs – they were different then. Whatever I needed to get in the front door, I think yeah. it
2: was, Something – I
3: it, don't. it was like a 13 or 12 – I don't even All remember what it was. All
2: that comes else. to mind right now is legally blonde, so <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know if I'm going to
2: be very exactly. helpful. So I, gave, well,
3: I, got, I got into law school and – um yeah like I said, worked really hard, and um I was not an a student in law school, and I worked hard. I gave it all I got um but uh, i'm so I'm so happy that I chose that path. I really am, and so here I you know, I graduated from law school. thank God, mm-hmm. while you were waiting tables and getting kind of some traveling
1: um under your feet, what was your favorite place you visited back then? Ooh.
3: Hmm. I'm trying to think I actually think you know. I've had the benefit of kind of you know traveling you know all over Italy I, back then I went the first time one of the first trips i um I went to London by myself and spent a summer in London and that was from a girl who grew up in North Denver and I am not kidding was never east of North Denver. <laughs> Look, I'm not kidding. Um, that was, and I went all by myself and I didn't know anybody. And that experience of like living somewhere, living in a flat, I think I was 20 some years old. I can't really remember. And, and just learning how to do that and how to navigate that and get a passport. Like nobody in my family had a passport, right? Well, I will say that both sets of my grandparents, great grandparents, or grandparents came from other countries, literally to North to Denver, but you know, they came here. Nobody traveled after that. So that was a really... Great experience, and it was a hard experience um, because you got to learn a lot about yourself when you're in another country and another city and you're trying to make friends and you're trying to figure it out and you're 20 some years old. And um, so that was a great experience. But I have to say that one of my best travels um, was the first time I went to New York City. I think I was then 18, and back then. When we were 18 in Colorado, we had like 3-2 bars. That's all we had until you were 21. So you could go to bars, but they had 3-2 beer. They don't have that anymore. (laughs) But in New York City at 18, you could go into a real bar. And I met this wild and crazy gal when I was about 18. She moved um, to my neighborhood with her family from New York. They grew up in Queens. And her name was Doreen. She's still my dear friend to this day. As a matter of fact, I just texted her. (laughs) And she was wild and crazy. And I met her, and I latched onto her thinking, this gal is going to be fun the rest of my life, <laughs> and she ended up going moving back to New York. And I would wait tables, get enough money, go back, live in Queens with her for a few weeks, go to Manhattan, just do these crazy, bizarre things. You know how you party all night long. I shouldn't be sharing all this in New York, <laughs> but I that was for me. I was just like, oh my God, I here I am on 50th and Federal, and like next week I'm going to be like in Manhattan and Queens, just having such so much fun. So that I just did all things like this, really adventurous and going all kinds of different crazy places. And love of travel is something that you've always carried with
1: you. What What's so significant about travel to you? You've had so many great trips.
3: I think too. I mean, you know, when you go on a trip and even sometimes when you're on your trip, there's always ups and downs, right? And you're always like, oh my God, are we going to make it through this? Or, you know, you run into something that's not working or... You're not having a great day, even though most of your days are amazing whenever you travel. But think about when you come home. They make for the funniest stories, right? Even those most challenging moments. You're like, yeah. remember the time, you know, when they wouldn't let us off the whatever train or we couldn't figure out the train or whatever it was. <laughs> you come back and laugh. But I think it's, you get out there, you get to meet people in a different culture, and it's really fun. It's, I mean, that's my natural, so I think kind of where my innate curiosity goes. It's just like being with people, learning about people. Um, you get to be in their world. Um, and it just makes life experiences that you never forget, right? It just kind of helps that little tapestry of life. It just makes you um, a, a really different person. And I think the other thing, too, uh, as Maya Angelo always says, whenever you travel, you realize that the rest of the world... Loves like you, laughs like you, cry. You know, it's it's just like a really great experience for me, and I it just brings me great joy. And it's really fun to like surround yourself with people who are really adventurous and you know really want to travel and have fun. And yeah,
1: you mentioned that travel disaster stories make for the funniest stories. <laughs> Do you have a funny travel disaster story you'd like to share? I'm
3: trying to think. Believe me, there's plenty of them. <laughs> I I I don't. I don't I'll just say this you know whenever you travel, you just have days where you know you're in the you're in the middle of some little place in Italy, and you've got to get to the airport by four o'clock in the morning because you're going to fly into Munich, right, and you get there and of course, there's nobody there. So you mm-hmm. got to turn in your car. Where do we put the key? Like, it's always something, right? You've got a whole bunch of people like, well, where where, where do we leave the rent-a-car? And now where do we put the keys? Do so we just, like, leave them in the car? And <laughs> it's on my charge card. And you try to get everybody in the airport. And then you finally get on this plane. And then you, like, you're roll into Munich. And there's, like, I just remember there was, you know, yet another disaster when we got there at 9 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, whenever you travel, you just have those days where you think, oh, my God, this is exhausting I still hope that car is not going to be on my visa when I get back to America. <laughs> but I think the thing that I always learned when I, that, that's really kind of the bigger part of the story is a long time ago, I just have this great group of friends that I travel with, and we call it dropping and drinking, especially when you go to, like, Italy you, or France or something, right? There, at any corner, you could just say, like, we cannot figure it out. We're exhausted, and we're going to drop You sit down at 11 o'clock a the day, order a little Prosecco, a little glass of white wine, a little snack, and all of a sudden everybody gets nice again, even when you're being (laughs) naughty to each other, right? And so I I just have to add one more thing. My kid who's traveled a lot with us all over, you know, since he was about 11 with a whole bunch of women, one time he was in a people-to-people program in high school where they were going to travel abroad and be ambassadors, you know, for the United States. And they had to take all these classes before they went and parents had to be in the back. And one they were trying to get them ready for those disastrous moments and they said, you know, there's gonna be times when it's gonna be difficult and you're gonna miss your family and you're gonna be sad and you know, what any ideas on what we can do? And I'm like, oh my God. And my kid raised his hand and he said, This is true at drop and drink. That's yeah. what my family does. I'm like, oh my god, doesn't say
2: that. He's representing the family. Exactly. drop and
1: drink. So, let's move into your legal career. Um tell us a little bit about how you got started in the law and your journey to being the presiding judge of Denver County Courts. Well, it's <laughs> all well. in one breath.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um I think, you know, when I look back, um of course, I was waiting tables when I was in law school because that's how I made money. That's how I survived. That's how I paid my rent um, my whole life. And so when I graduated, it was really hard then. I kept applying for jobs and I would usually make the final cut for the interview, but I really didn't have a lot of experience because I'd grown up in the restaurant industry, right? And so um, I I'm telling you, I went on like in 40 interviews and I would never get the job. So then I started getting really brave. I would just interview thinking, I'm not going to get it. I'm just like throwing everything out there, right? Putting myself out there. And finally, I got a job with Gene Chancho. um, And that was my first job. I was his associate. It was a perfect match because nobody else would have put up with the craziness of me being (laughs) a lawyer for the first few years. But Gene Chancho, (laughs) thank you, Gene, for giving my first job. Um, And I remember when I looked back uh, working for him because he was such a phenomenal lawyer. He was so great with people. I'd watch him, how he'd handle our clients. I'd you know, watch him when he was in court. He was a great trial lawyer, especially in the criminal arena. And I was the worst lawyer. I'm not even kidding. I just – it took me a long time to learn to be a good lawyer. And I would – literally, I did do the domestic work, and I would go into court – and I would represent people, and I, like, knew I sucked. I hate to, there's no other better expression. Yeah, why do
2: you say that you were so bad? Oh, my God,
3: trust me. You had to be in there. And you're just thinking, I, mean, I remember one time I was representing this person in in the the magistrate in Adams County, Randall Davis, then, now he's a judge, said, you know, I, was laying the, I had to lay a foundation to get the decree approved. I didn't even know that, right? And so he just looked at me and started asking the questions. Every day was a train wreck when I went to court. And then I would come back, and I would cry to Jean, and I'm like, we have to give those people their money back. And Aww. I meant it. Like, I, we cannot take their money Aww. in good faith. That was crazy. And I gave it all. I was always prepared. I always worked really hard. And and he was so funny. He's like, we're not giving their money back. You did a fine job. Um, but I really realized that I really had to learn how to be in the courtroom and how to, you know, stand up in the courtroom and learn about evidence. It's just such a overwhelming, daunting task it seemed like to, to learn how to do that and manage clients. I mean, I knew the law and I knew how to manage clients, but going into the courtroom was just... So my um, friend Heather Turner said, why do you think about being a DA? I'm like, well, oh, there you go. Because I mean... It's so bad. I'm thinking about going to work at King Supers. I don't know. I'm about <laughs> to take a different career path. I don't know. Um, and so I went to. The, I got a job at the DA's office, um, and that's another funny story. It goes back to my my um, crazy family. So my dad was. My dad grew up in Denver. He went to Manual High School. He was a very big personality. Everybody knew. and He was a big gambler in Denver. Every but he knew that. And so when I went to apply to be a DA, I just was so ready to try to learn how to be a lawyer. And I wanted this job so bad. And I was so nervous. And I practiced why I want to be a DA. And I sat down with Jim Smith, who was then the elected DA, who's like one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever worked for. And Bob Grant was then the assistant DA who later on went on to be the DA in Adams County. And I was ready for like the softball question you always get, why do you want to be a DA? And this is true. I will never forget as long as I live. Jim Smith looked at me, goes, "Are you related to Ron and oh, Don Spawn?" And I'm like, "Oh my God, that's my father and his twin brother." And I just thought, I remember thinking, I, I was so lost, and I go, "Why?" I didn't even say, "Like, why?" Right? <laughs> why? And he said, "Well, I don't want to incriminate myself, but they ran a pretty good crap game down at Club <laughs> Ida," and I'm like, "Oh my God." Wow. that was my crazy family always coming back to haunt me like oh at every like so funny so I remember looking at him and saying I really need this job please give me this job anyway <laughs> I went on to the DA's office um and I I'm not just being funny we all worked in this like trailer back then at this really the courthouse was like this weird round thing and we all worked at trailers and huh. it was so funny we do get dressed up for work and Go to work every day and then march over to the round building and do your trials as a DA. And there was a whole... About 10 of us, I think, that were little county court DAs. And we had so much fun. We were just a great group of working together. But I, again, sucked for the first six months. <laughs> and I had Judge Romano, who's one of my first judges, thank God, who's retiring this week. I just sent him a love note talking about all of this. <laughs> and every day, I think I caused a million mistrials. <laughs> I... I'm like, why can't why can't I say that about the, you know, why can't the defendant point on evidence? I mean, I learned everything <laughs> the hard way. And um, it really started to, I, but I learned. And I really started to learn how to do a trial. And I started to learn how to lay a foundation. And it started to become part of me and ingrained in me. Um, and that just started to to create a path for me that really seemed to work. So I was a slow learner when I started out. And then I went on to, you know, be a felony DA. And I loved growing up as a lawyer in Adams County. It really it really was an honor to grow up there. The judges really made us all be professional, made us all treat each other with respect. They treated us with respect. We treated everybody fairly. We learned a lot. We grew up there, you know, as lawyers and learned a lot. And I was really honored to go on to be a district court magistrate there. And I think, you know, every time I went to to, to a new level in my career, it just opens up doors for you that you, you never, and I know Mallory, I've talked to you about this, you can't see what's coming sometimes. Sometimes you don't know the opportunities you're going to have. Sometimes you shouldn't try to control where you want to go, right? It's not that you can't look into the crystal ball. And I remember when I became a district court magistrate, Judge Bachman, who was then the chief judge, had me serve on a lot of committees to kind of represent Adams County point of view. There was a lot of reform going on and children in the area of juvenile law and dependency neglect law. And so I kind of brought that perspective because I was hearing very many different, different diverse, diverse dockets. And that's kind of where I just like shot into working, you know, with the Colorado Women's Bar Association, the CBA, you know, I served on a lot of committees there and just started to open up my world, um, And I really became so much of a better lawyer and a better jurist, too, working because you learn what other people are doing in other jurisdictions. You're bringing new ideas back to your jurisdiction. Um, And so I think that was kind of the beginning of my career, and that was a big jumping-off point for me.
2: So. I'm really curious because I'm a young attorney, and I know a lot of young attorneys, and hearing you talk repeatedly about how horrible of an attorney you are, I'm Which curious. I doubt a
1: little bit, by <laughs> well, the way.
2: I doubt it, and I also think that it sounds like you were in the learning process, and so I'm wondering, were you seeing other young attorneys at that time who seemed to be doing significantly better than you were? Yes, really. I was (laughs) right in my courtroom every single day.
3: I would go back to like the trial office, and they'd be like, "How'd you do today?" I'm like, "Hmm, I didn't make it past halftime." I am not kidding. Like I, (laughs) I don't know what it was. I even like you know I remember um, when I started out being a DA. um, Liz Perez Castle was my assigned PD. Believe me, she would tell you like, "Oh my God, there was like blood, DA blood, all over the courtroom every single day." (laughs) It was just for some reason I. You know, it just was, it was something that was hard for me to kind of pull together. But I also think I was competent, right? So I was doing, at least I was, I didn't get fired, thank God. Right. <laughs> Every day I thought I was going to get fired. But, oh, you know, actually that reminds me of another story. When I went to district court, because then I learned how to be a lawyer and how to do a trial and I was advanced to, to district court. And I remember, you know, when you feel like, what do they, what do they call that? When you just feel like... Oh, my God, I'm a fraud. This imposter. Imposter syndrome, syndrome mm-hmm. that's what it's called. And I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, I've been just recall. like... And they didn't – whatever fell in your prelim week was yours. I'm, I, everything from attempted murder down to, like, a criminal trespass, it was yours. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm responsible. This isn't DUI land anymore, right? I'm, <laughs> this is, like, the big stuff. I'm playing with the big boys and girls now. <laughs> um, and I just remember thinking – I'm an imposter. How am I going to manage this? Uh, And I was so stressed out. And once again, Jim Smith, my boss, who I remember who asked me about the crap, came down a club. (laughs) I was walking down the hall. I was trying to act like I was really confident and I was trying to hide my stress. And he's like, hey, he had this uh, office. He always kept the door open. He always read the newspaper and this big fish behind him. I'll never forget it. And he really didn't go out to the courthouse very often or anything, but he ran a great office, but he was kind of you know, at the office all the time. So he goes, hey, Therese, come here for a sec. I'm like, okay. So I sat down in his office. He goes, I want to tell you a story. I'm like, okay. (laughs) He said, so he tells me the story of this really horrible, aggravated murder case or something like that. It was like a horrible case. And then Judge Enzer, who just retired from the Adams County bench last year, they were the two DAs that tried this case. And he went through how horrible it was and the victims. And and I was just like, oh, my God. He goes, you know what? We lost. And I go, oh. I'm so sorry. And you know, I'm like, oh, my God. And he goes, and you know what? And I go, what? He goes, we still got a paycheck. <laughs> He's like, relax. You need to relax. <laughs> it was like so funny. I mean, that was his way of saying like, you need to relax. You are where you need to be. You know. And it was like moments like that that just you look back at it you think, oh, my God. And that is a total, that's exactly how we did it. And you think, okay, I'm where I need to be. I need to have confidence in myself. I need to relax. Mm-hmm. And I need to trust you know, I'm where I'm supposed to be.
1: And then, of course, you go on to build a huge, brand new government office from the ground up. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
3: That, I have to say, I was on the bench for seven years in Adams County. Um, I started in 1994 um, as a district court magistrate. Only the second woman ever in the history of district court in Adams County. That's... um, brought a lot of experiences that could be for a whole nother conversation, but I love the judges I worked with and, and what I did. Um, but I remember when I was in the courtroom, like especially in dependency and neglect courtrooms, and I grew up in a criminal justice system where the public defenders are some always some of the best lawyers in the courtroom. So I knew what state lawyers could do. I was a state lawyer, you know, I would just see that the children who no one saw, they could be nine months old, only the caseworker, no people were representing them and never saw them, never met them, never talked to anybody, and never litigated, never filed a motion, never did an appeal. it was foreign to me. and I remember when they created uh, the office it was an idea, the office of the child representative. I actually served on the committee under Justice Corliss then, kind of looking at dependency neglect reform, and that's when all the reform was going on. I was just a representative, a committee member. and when they introduced a House bill, House Bill 1371, I think in 2000, um, to create the first state agency in the nation to pull together all the best interest representation, all the attorneys, and create it like Alternate Defense counsel. Actually, Alternate Defense counsel was created a few years earlier. And I didn't even envision myself like applying for that job or wanting to do that job. But then one day when I was I had the Colorado lawyer and I was reading it, and um, they were talking about... I think they had an article just kind of setting it up because it was coming out of the state legislature. I remember thinking, oh my God, maybe I could do that. Remember again, maybe I could do that. And maybe, I mean, I just started thinking, and I remember I talked to Diane Dupree, who I've talked about earlier, and she's like, what an opportunity. You will never regret that. And so I jumped in and Took House Bill 1371 without a pencil, without an office, without an employee, without a phone number, without anything. And Brian Sheehy, who was then head of Alternate Defense Counsel, helped me <laughs> so much um, and started a state agency. And it is the it is some of the hardest work I've ever done, just trying to create an agency, trying to change a culture, I had to change a legal culture. Sometimes you had to fire people. You had to create like, a, you know, I left an $18 million agency and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it's probably the thing I'm most proud of. It really is. It's just, um, I'm proud that I, I really feel like I changed the culture. And my whole goal the whole time was to give children lawyers that I saw in the public defender's office. I saw an alternative defense counsel. Um, and so I feel like I did that. How logistically, how do you create or change a culture? That is really hard because I've worked really hard on that the existence? last few years. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that actually changing a culture is the hardest thing to do. It's, it it is where you have to like look at yourself and find the absolute best leadership skills and and strategically think about things. Um, I had a vision when I applied to be the first director of OCR, and I had, I worked for a commission or a board that was, you know, nine people, but represented every congressional district, just like the Public Defenders Commission and Alternate Defense Council Commission. And when I went in, I had a vision. I knew where I was going because I really gave a lot of thought to it, and I thought – and I had the benefit of seeing Alternate Defense Counsel built too, right? And so I had that benefit. But I I just sat down and had a long-term plan. It, it's, I mean, I, I think one of my better skills is really kind of plotting and planning and thinking, you know – there's all these pieces. I'm going to put it together. I mean, the first thing I did is I, I told my board, I said, we're just going to take a year. We're going to roll over these contracts because we're not going to make any knee-jerk reactions. I'm going to go to every part of the state and meet every lawyer, every judge, every department of health. And Administrator. I'm going to meet everybody, and we're going to come back, and we're going to see what we, what we where we are. Like, what do we really need to change? Do we really need to overhaul everything? It's just my experience in Adams County. I don't know. Um, and we're going to gather as much information as possible, and we're going to get to know all these people, and we're going to get to know this culture, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to have a plan, and I did that. I went to every part of the state. I saw every courthouse in the state, which was amazing. I met, to this day, some judges I still see, and I came back, and I learned a lot. I learned that in rural jurisdictions, there was a lot of good work going on. People were paid hourly. There were in a lot of front-range jurisdictions. things were Nobody was seeing children. They didn't feel the need to. And then I thought, okay, now I'm going to make, we're going to make everybody in the, in the state interview, which was really controversial. And we're going to make them reapply for their jobs. And it's not going to just be me. Cause everybody will say, oh, just that crazy woman came along and we're going to build little, little interview panels in each community. We're going to have a, a local volunteer, maybe a legislator. I don't know. You know, somebody who's known in the community that like a CASA volunteer maybe. And so then I went back into each judicial district and built all these groups of people, and we interviewed. And I made it clear that you know, here's you're applying for a job. Here's what we're looking for. We want people who are going to litigate. We want people who are going to be strong. We're going to have you know, and so, and we also recruited a lot of retired public defenders. A lot of I robbed a lot of the DA's offices, kind of you know, took from there and encouraged people to apply. And the other thing I knew that the way we paid people made no sense. And I remember saying, then they would just give you a flat fee like $1,000 for, I think, two years of the life of the case. So if I gave you $1,000, and then I was working with Brian Shea, he said, if I gave the alternate defense counsel attorney $1,000, do you think I'd have a lot of motions hearings or jury trials? No. It was the way they paid people, and you couldn't get out of that. They were stuck in that because of budget issues. And people always say, well, You know, children. It's easy to advocate for children. It's really not because people don't ever money. They don't give money to teachers, right? Or I'm telling you, it's really not an easy place to advocate. We didn't have any strong constitutional rights to stand on. And but I just said I'm building it just like that. It's going to be just like the criminal defense world and what we've built in Colorado with public defenders. Pay them right give them a reasonable caseload, make sure that we give them trial skills. And so I had a I had a map, but I knew where I was going, and I just kept trying to figure out how to get there. And somehow in the middle of a budget crisis, we convinced our joint budget committee to convert us to hourly, maybe a few jurisdictions at a time, and pay like alternate defense counsel um, to get away from that flat fee. Um, and I fired a large amount of people, and that was really hard because it was our livelihood. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. We brought in new people, and we started building things like we were the agency that provided training, we provided trial help, we got the state rate up. I took a run at about two or three times with Brian Sheehy and Lindy Froelich, and we were able to get the state rate up. And so, you know, I had this, I knew what I was going. I think I even looked at the ABA standards for criminal defense best practices, and I just kept running at it, figuring out how to get there. And I think one of the most important things I did then was just I had to have good relationships with everybody both sides of the aisle at the state capitol. You know, I had to have good relationships with Alternate Defense counsel. All those relationships mattered and let me leave, I think, a really effective agency.
1: You've talked about a couple of the challenges that you faced. And obviously now as presiding judge um, in Denver County Court, you've accomplished a lot of change from... Bond reform to procedures to be much more efficient and value the public's time in so many different areas, there's been so much progress. Now we're in 2020 and we're dealing with COVID-19 and you are kind of steering the ship um, for our court system in Denver. How what does that look like in relation to all these other challenges that you have tackled and had your map and overcome? Where are we
3: with COVID? Well, COVID has been obviously something none of us in our lifetime saw coming, right? And I'm really proud because I work with, there's 18 judges in Denver County Court, and all 17 of the people that I work with are amazing. We have a common vision. We work closely together. Um, and I remember in March, we were literally at, uh, the judges have a retreat the last few years, Um and we set our goals for the year. and We have a common vision, and that day was March thirteenth. Mm. I will never. And we had our you know our agenda. We had you know Justice Samora kicking us off in the morning, which is always the great way to start your breakfast. And <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden we realized there was this thing COVID. And I think it was really Judge Smith who said, "This is real. We have to deal with it." And I think everybody, nobody really, I don't think any jurisdictions yet had shut down. Justice Coates had not entered the order yet of no jury trials. And we just turned the whole day over to, and it was really hard for me to go there to tell you the truth, right? I'm like, what? I'm going to shut down a courthouse? That, Like, who thinks like that, right? I mean, you're we have the largest court system in the state. We do 100,000 cases a year. And I'm like, I'm just going to shut down. Do I have... Can I can I do this? Do I have the legal authority to do this? How is this going to impact people? What about people who have cases set? Um, and then I just realized, and we literally went on Monday into mode of, we, we had no computers because we all had desktops, right, for all of our employees and judges. And I think by Monday or Tuesday, we somehow figured out how to send our staff home, keep the courts open that we had to and should keep open. Like, you know, when you're arrested, the, the bond-setting courts and the protection order court figured out how to shut everything else down and and get all of our employees home, which was unheard of, get computers out there. And then once we got that done, go back to like, okay, how do we bring everybody back? And and actually, I can take no credit. It was, we have the most amazing IT team, this little group of, of people under Jonathan, my court executive, my judges, everybody. We just, it is, I just sat there and said, this is what we have to do. And I had was practically paralyzed, and they actually figured out how to do everything. And now today, I just did um, a virtual docket for Judge Eddie the last couple of days, and I'm so impressed with how well it's working. But that was I'm that was a crazy time, just because you think really the the judicial system is never shut down right in America. That's the first time we've ever had to shut it down. And do we have? Can we do this? And how do we do this? And how do we go virtual? And how do we send employees home? And how do we keep people safe? And you know, we just refined things and revisited things. Like literally within the first few weeks, the few courts we had open, we're like, Okay, can't have people coming in the courtroom. How do you know we just kept going at it and and being really flexible, um, and not digging our heels in on any one idea and keeping everybody else positive is really hard, right? Mm-hmm. And keeping everybody feeling safe but also then you have to say at some point we're like we're an essential service we are a court system we have to we have to show up and do things that is covid has i just think we are all exhausted not just in the court system just <laughs> in life we are yeah. exhausted it has been so hard
1: what do you do for self care other than we've talked about cooking we've d- talked about travel now we're exhausted. How do you take <laughs> care of
3: yourself? Well, I hate to say this, but I'm just going to be honest. Happy hour. Yeah. Like, really, I'm not kidding, right? <laughs> it's okay. You're allowed like you to have happy home, hour. Like, I a happy hour. Um, happy <laughs> hour. I just think I really do. I, you know, you come home, you relax, you enjoy your family, you enjoy your friends. I know, like, you know, it's there was a time that we were all, like, stay at home, and then we all got to be together again, you know, and go out to restaurants, and... Mm-hmm. Spend time together, and we're still hanging in there trying to spend time together. I don't know how long that's gonna going to last right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. It seems like but I just cherished think, it. Honestly, I of course, I mean, you know, I, I exercise a lot. I love to hike. I'm really an outdoors person. I I know every part of our mountains from the western slope mm. down to the San Luis Valley. I know every part of Colorado because I'm a big outdoors person. Um, but I and I that that is real love for me. But I have to say, it's just You know, like I I could live in Italy or in France and have like a little table outside some little restaurant just every day. Like, I'm here for happy hour. Anybody ready? (laughs) Drop and drink. (laughs) Drop and drink. Oh my gosh, I
2: love that saying so much. (laughs) COVID is life's drop
1: and drink. (laughs) Oh, yeah, pretty much. So, as we are kind of winding down time wise, we have to ask, what's next for you? What
3: do you want to accomplish next? Who will Judge Spawn be? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have had the greatest career. I I have done so many things I never imagined that I could do, would do, you know, I've 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 just done so many amazing things. And I I think, you know, I'm 61 years old and I, you know, where am I going to go next? And I think, you know, it's time really for me to start looking at handing off the presiding judge to somebody else. And I'm really looking forward to going back and just getting back into a courtroom And I've loved being the presiding judge. It's been an honor, but I also really miss the courtroom. And I really just want to get back in there and be the best judge that I can be. That's really what I want to do, and I'm looking really forward to it. And, you know, brush up on evidence, you know, get to know the law. And just, you know, I think the thing, too, about COVID is that all the little things really matter, right? You you think, like, God, I didn't appreciate so much. I took so much for granted. And I think just getting in and just taking every single case and every single person and every single lawyer, everybody walks into the courtroom, If we ever get back to that or virtually. Um, and just knowing that how I treat them and what I do matters. It makes a difference in their life. That's That's kind of my next, I don't see myself having any extended career. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, I really missed the bench and I found my way back. I loved my job as a magistrate. And I always knew in the back of my mind I was going to come home, I call it, Mm -hmm. to the court system. And I'm so lucky to be a Denver County Court judge, believe me. And I'm home. And this is where I'm going to wrap up my career. Um, And so I'm looking forward to that transition.
1: Awesome. I have to ask you, how does mentorship fit into that? Because... I can attest, as many of our listeners can, that you are the world's best mentor. Oh, thank you. And there are so many people in our legal community that are endlessly grateful to you for that. So how does mentorship factor into you getting back into the courtroom and working presumably with some younger lawyers as well?
3: I actually... I think we all, what I love about Colorado is our bar really is small. We still know each other. We still care about each other. We still work on committees together We and all, whatever bar it is. And I just think mentorship has always been, I am, I sit here today because of the people who reached out, believe me, you have no idea, have pulled me forward since I was probably about 13 years old. And I always feel it's an obligation to give back and I enjoy it, right? And I think I had many people say, you can do this. I remember like, I sure? Do you think I can really do this? Do you really? And I, I, I really love when I see people, you know, and, and see that they have so much potential in them and just really encouraging them to, to keep going, keep going forward. Um, and i just love mentoring people in the courtroom it is it is it brings me great joy and i i have so many mentors that i owe so much to so i really think it's one our obligation but i really really enjoy it i
2: have one more question a little bit out of turn but on that note do you ever have the opportunity to see those young lawyers who are like you were where they come into your courtroom and are like, oh God, I you don't know what I'm doing. Me. You better not say
3: me so helpful. <laughs> you and, are a great lawyer.
2: And <laughs> how do you how do you address them? How do you, you know, deal with those people who are like, oh God, why am I even here?
3: Well I actually remember what it's like. Like I would never forget what it's like. Right. And so a lot of times I'll have student lawyers in, in my court uh, oh, yeah. from DU, or I will have new lawyers, you know, in county court, you have new lawyers. And I just think as long as they're prepared, that is the one thing is like, you owe me as the judge, you need to come in prepared and you need to give it the best you've got. Right. <laughs> and, and that's because you have to learn, you have to learn how to do everything. And, um, and once they're prepared, I, I just feel like, I I hope that I'm really patient, and I hope that I'm kind. I think we all have to be kind to each other, and I'm always happy to talk to people afterwards. You know, I think just by being in a courtroom when you can't lay a foundation and you keep trying, 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 right? I've been there, and so I'll do that, but I I just think you have to be patient, and, you know, we have to start here, and we're all going to get to be really experienced lawyers, and there's no one that comes in and knows how to do it all, right? And so I... I actually, I like watching people learn, and I'm really patient and kind. I think it's really okay to, you got to be brave, you're going to make mistakes, don't be afraid to make mistakes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Teaching from the bench is invaluable yeah. in county court. We've talked with a few other folks about that. It's really an art. Obviously, you have to stay in your lane and be appropriate. But at the same time, you know, after a trial, welcoming a young lawyer back and answering their questions and talking to them about their case presentation. That is huge.
3: I think it's huge, and I enjoy doing it. And the judges that I appeared in front of in county court, not only Judge Romano, but all the judges, were all, their door was always open. You could always go talk to them. Um, you know, the other thing I I did a lot um was watch other trials. Like we I would to this day I like to go watch a trial cuz I learn something every time I watch a trial. So um but I think I I think mentoring is so important. And it's not even just about being a lawyer. It's about especially just even as women still or you know, having somebody cheer you on or encourage you and just like you can do this come on let's go do it you know let's make a plan it just it really makes a difference yeah Mm -hmm. i mean look at our alexis king
1: our alexis king
3: i hate to say that she's gonna kill me if she
1: hears this she
3: was a magistrate who was phenomenal in denver county court and she uh came from the jefferson county da's office she was one of the best jurists i've ever seen and one day we were talking she's like i don't know I think I can. I should run for DA, and I don't know, what do you think? I'm like, oh, my God, you could do this, right? And look where <laughs> she is. She's our first female Jefferson County DA. Yay. So proud. I'm so proud So of her. proud.
1: Well, unfortunately, we are out of time for today, but it has been such a pleasure to visit with you. We appreciate your time so much, and thank you for being here.
3: Oh, thank you. And for everything you. that you thank do for our thank community. Thank you. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest, or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontellion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.